Psalm 6, a prayer of David's. Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord, how long? Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. Among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from the grave? I am worn out from my groaning. All night long, I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. Away from me, all you who do evil, for the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies will be overwhelmed with shame and anguish. They will turn back and suddenly be put to shame. This is God's word. Uh, it will have become apparent that in this uh, second week of a three-week excursion into the Psalms that I'm bringing you, not without some trepidation, um, a, a lament, a, a psalm of David, a, a song of sorrow, a song of complaint. And it's trepidation because um, it's not my aim to have us all depressed and in tears by the end of the service, quite the reverse. And those of you who were here last week uh, would have heard Matt speak about laments in general. And I was thinking, oh gosh, that's just what I was going to say. Uh, and then I was thinking, well, despite the disparity in ages, Matt and I have attended the same college at roughly the same times and been taught by the same Old Testament lecturer. So um, there's bound to be a bit of overlap somewhere. So, uh, so please excuse that. And I was also thinking that as, as Matt gave a, a challenging glimpse into the presence of laments in the Psalter last week, and this week the theme is amplified by exploring one short lament. There are surely present or listening in those whose needs exactly fit these messages and with whom God is endeavoring to communicate something important. And we're looking at the whole psalm this morning, and so I have given to you, because I'm not going to be showing the text on the screen, uh, given to you a, a printout of the whole psalm. It's good to look at a, a whole, it's only a short one, to look at the whole psalm at once, so on those little red printouts. So let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we just um, thank you for who you are. We just thank you that you love us, that you want relationship with us. We thank you uh, for Jesus and all that he has accomplished for us. And we thank you for your word. And so we please ask you to open your word to us this morning, to each of us individually as we have need. We commit this time to you in the very precious name of Jesus. Amen. 
So I was wondering where would we be without uh, the book of Psalms in our Bible. So here, right in the center of God's word, is this amazing record of the prayers and songs of the Jewish people. If anything were to tell us that the living God wants relationship with his people, it's the existence of this book in the Psalter. Because most of the Bible is telling us about God's character and the story of how he wants to reach out to us and reconnect us um, with himself. Reconnect us with the heart from whom we have originated. But here in the Psalms is the record of his people speaking back to him in praise and worship and trust and affirmation, but also in question and challenge, in distress, in doubt and in puzzlement. And their voices become our voices. So whatever we're thinking or feeling at any time, we can find somewhere in this songbook words that resonate with our own. Someone has been there before us. And because these thoughts and feelings are recorded here in Scripture, God is saying, it's okay. It's acceptable to me. Come and tell me exactly how it is with you. My shoulders are broad enough. I honor you so much that I will accept, I welcome your questions and your doubts and your tears, as well as your praises. And it's written in poetry and it's put to music. Poetry does something different to prose. It, it stimulates our imaginations. It engages our emotions. It's a holistic uh, connection with God. And, and music flights these thoughts and feelings from our very spirits heavenward. And it tells us that this short lament was sung to uh, music, uh, to a, a stringed instrument. I'm thinking it must surely have been in a minor key, and it's not, to my knowledge, sung in church today. I don't think, as Matt said last week, any of the laments are sung in church today, yet there are so many of them. Why don't we sing, how long, Lord, how long, or why don't you do something about the wicked, or when are you going to act, or why is my bed drenched with tears night after night? There's a significant part of Israel's songbook for use in corporate worship. So I'm asking this morning, where is your voice in this psalm? Which part resonates with you? How do you picture yourself here? With what do you identify? So when we have a look in the psalm, what are the feelings expressed here? There is deep grief. There are the tears. But there's also depression, which is, can also be an expression of grief. Uh, there's loneliness, desperation, anger, pleading. But there is also a hanging in there, believing in God, else why would the psalmist be speaking to him? So it may be a lament or a complaint, but it's not a grumble or a whine. So make no mistake, this is a statement of strong faith. It's just that what the psalmist knows of God doesn't chime with, with his own circumstances. It doesn't seem to add up. But he can't give up on God. 
So as a statement of faith, what does he believe about his God? Verse 1, Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. He knows that God is righteous and will execute judgment on wrongdoing. These, are the, these same words are written in Psalm 2 as the Lord raged against the nations. So was this psalm written because the psalmist was feeling the weight of his own sin and expected or thought he deserved judgment? The early church thought so because David uses exactly the same language in Psalm 32 and Psalm 38 and in those psalms he actually admits his own sin. So I wonder, is this, is this your voice in the psalm? Uh, are you feeling the weight of guilt for something as yet unconfessed to God? Is it tearing you apart? And we have to be a bit careful here because too often when things uh, become difficult, we can either be in the, it's all my fault, I must have done something wrong uh, field, or we're in the, absolutely nothing to do with me. I didn't do anything wrong. This isn't fair. I don't know why this happened to me. Now, it's always a good starting point as a Christian uh, to ask God if we've been at fault when circumstances become unbearable. Do I need to confess something, Lord? Put it right. Are you trying to teach me something? Discipline me. However, it's good to remember it's the question but it's not the answer. We've got to wait on the answer. If we do need to admit to something, it will come readily to mind and we can sort it out. We know what to do. But if not, we have to accept that fact and, and look elsewhere for explanation, which may or may not be forthcoming. Because our minds are finite. We don't know the end from the beginning. And we are but one thread in the whole tapestry that God is weaving of his dealings with humankind on earth. But in this psalm, we should note that there is no confession of sin, which opens up the voice of this psalm to other possibilities. So what else does the psalmist believe about his God? He is merciful and he can heal. Verse 2 and 3, Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. It's Hebrew poetry doubling up the thoughts. The psalmist is holistically feeling absolutely, well, how do we interpret these words? Some, some versions say terror. My bones are shaking with terror. My soul also is struck with terror. Another speaks of being sick at heart. So there's deeply felt emotion, great physical pain. And as a listener, you're brought up short by the intensity of the anguish. So this is intense distress. It could be caused by serious physical illness, as some commentators suggest. 
Indeed, in verse 5, the psalmist asks, who praises you from the grave? So perhaps a, a terminal illness has been pronounced over the psalmist. Or is it primarily the inner anguish of mind and soul, grief occasioned by the loss of something less tangible than physical health? Maybe soul or spirit have been offended against or character has been slandered. Perhaps innocence has been violated or words misunderstood. Perhaps the psalmist doesn't feel safe. There's been physical assault. Or maybe this is an old grief that has never been dealt with, that is holding the psalmist captive unable to move forward into the freedom and the light that he knows that God has for him. And this grief apparently goes on and on with no end in sight. How long, O Lord, how long? He could fix it up right now if he chose to. How come he's not doing anything? I mean... Is he busy with other people in the world? He'll get back to me when he's got a spare minute. Did he blink and miss the fact that I'm in distress? Or perhaps I'm not worthy of his attention. Maybe he thinks I'm coping quite well and it'll be good spiritual exercise for me. Does he actually understand how painful this all is. How distressing. I'm believing in you here, God. I'm waiting patiently on you. Really, I am. But how much longer? My friend Jane, she says, we're never tested beyond what we can cope with. But honestly, God, I'm going to have to check the context of that verse because this little bit of elastic standing here has been stretched way, way, way beyond its bounce-back ability point. How much longer? How much longer must I endure this? Maybe you find yourself here. And yet, despite his distress, the psalmist continues speaking with this God whom he knows in circumstances that don't add up. You can almost hear the disciple Peter when, when Jesus asked him, do you also wish to go away? And Peter says, where else would I go, Lord? Where else would I look? You've got the words of eternal life. But where would I go? And this psalmist perseveres and says, turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. He believes God can deliver him. And he knows God is unfailingly loving. But please, Lord, demonstrate your love for me by delivering me from these circumstances. But he feels the Lord has turned away for some reason unknown to us and that God has deserted him in his distress. Perhaps this is where you find resonance with the scripture. Praying to a concrete ceiling, to a brick wall, 
not sensing God's presence, feeling alone, unheard, really struggling, dejected, inward looking. These feelings are all very isolating. They're not something a sufferer wants to inflict on someone else. A friend empathizes with you, enters into something of your own feelings, but who wants to invite a friend into grayness? From the friend's point of view, it's difficult relating to someone with depression. There's no energy coming back to you. Your efforts to help seem to get sucked into the dark place. And so the psalmist is stuck, feeling alone and lonely. Is he even contemplating giving up? Maybe ending it all. So what is happening here in verse 5? Among the dead, no one proclaims you. Who praises you from the grave? Now this was written millennia before Jesus won the victory over death. So what understanding did this person have of continuing relationship with God after death? And when I first read the psalm, I thought perhaps the psalmist was reminding God that if he, the psalmist, were to die, God would miss out on some praise. Wouldn't that therefore be a good reason to heal him? Restore him to health? A bit of bargaining going on? You'd miss out on some praise, God, if I were to die. But given the context turn Lord, in effect asking for a renewed sense of his presence, it could be that the psalmist is simply saying, if I die, I will miss out on fellowship with you. So perhaps it's not so much you will miss out if I die, but I will miss out if I die. In which case he isn't giving up on God, so he's obviously not giving up on himself. And do the tears here help? Verse 6. I am worn out from my groaning. All night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. His plea of how long, O Lord, is is matched with his all night long weeping. There's so much water here. There are so many tears. It's difficult to imagine that anybody can weep that much salt water. We sometimes admit to having a good cry and feeling better for it. it. It's as if the tears well up and wash away a measure of the distress. And although we feel sad still, we feel a little bit refreshed for having a good cry. But here it seems the tears are coming from deep, deep down and there is not enough water in the psalmist's body to make enough tears to make any impression on the grief he is experiencing. And he is seemingly crying himself inside out, with no relief. If this is your voice, 
you will have no energy to even express it. The psalmist himself is exhausted. He has cried his eyes out. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. And they fail because of all my foes. Well, this is the first mention of enemies. Who are these many enemies? Perhaps they provide a clue as to the distress. Are these enemies the cause of his distress? Or are they opportunistic enemies who are kicking a fellow when he's down? I mean, for David, we find in many of his psalms reference to actual enemies who carry weapons and they're intent on terrifying him, uh, intending to assault him, capture him, or even murder him. You only have to look in the, if you have your Bibles, in the very next psalm, Psalm 7, which it says, he sang to the Lord concerning Cush, a Benjamite who was obviously coming after him. It's a fellow Israelite he was afraid of. We're aware of these sorts of enemies in the world. But what about here and now? Do we have flesh and blood enemies that are causing us distress? They can be found in the workplace or at school. They use their power to to bully, uh, to steal your good reputation, to insult. Perhaps they're in your home a toxic component of everyday life? Or are these enemies less tangible? We have already considered death as a possible enemy. Perhaps it's loneliness or low self-esteem or hopelessness. Or could these enemies be spiritual sneaks, uh, speaking lies into our spirits? taking this opportunity when we're really down to speak in doubt and despair. The possibilities are endless because we live in an utterly corrupted world. Now, I've been including images of various artworks as I have been speaking in an effort to help you find your voice in this psalm and to discover where you picture yourself. But this particular picture is my own favorite. Uh, So for the benefit of the tape, I will just explain that this is a little mouse looking somewhat forlorn, uh, sitting on the end of a jetty, looking out over a dark blue sea full of fish under a dull blue-gray sky. There's no one else in sight not even any beach or houses. And the the little caption underneath is, no matter how your heart is grieving, just keep believing. And I'm thinking that this little mouse has no innate strength. And a mouse is pretty low down the food chain. And it's all alone, and things are looking pretty bleak. And this is actually a picture of my, a card 
that sits on my desk at home. And there's nothing written in it because no one posted it to me with an encouraging word inside. I actually bought it for myself. So I think, well, how sad is that? When you buy a, a card for yourself, that's related to depression. But this little mouse is acting out this psalm. And I find it really lovely. And when your heart is grieving, just keep believing. So what do we say to God when our circumstances are isolating, painful, puzzling, or just plain scary? How do we express our continuing faith in God? I'm hanging in there, God, but I can't feel your presence and I don't understand my circumstances. And God replies, nevertheless, child, I am with you. But where, God, where I so much need your presence? But look, child, at what we've been reading. Remember, Jesus is my very image. Not in my image, he is my image. If you want to know my character, understand my love for you, look to Jesus. In verse 1, did Jesus not take all your sins on his body when he suffered and died for you? You may need discipline from time to time. Every child needs discipline. Else how are you to learn? But never punishment. Jesus took all the punishment meant for all the people ever born when he died for you. And if you have trusted in him, he has taken yours. You need not fear punishment. And look there in verse 2. Don't you see the crucifixion? Did you think I had not suffered the agony of dislocated joints and straining muscles? And broken heart, for love of you all, how long indeed, how much longer can I bear the agony of witnessing all the evil people do to each other in my world? In verse 4, have I not indeed delivered you because of my unfailing love and granted you life eternal through Jesus who defeated death for you? And did not Jesus believe I had turned away from him? And read again the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and tell me he is not with you in your tears. He fought and defeated many enemies, and you know that in him you too can defeat yours. But it hurts, how it hurts, Lord, and there is no end in sight. I know, my child, I know. This conversation cannot have happened between the psalmist and God because Jesus had yet to live, suffer, die, and be resurrected. 
although the psalmist has spoken out truth, he, he was, without, without knowing, still persevering in faith. Oh, sorry, he wasn't aware of the truth he was speaking out, yet he persevered in faith. And yet, something significant happens between verses uh, 7 and 8. There must have been an input of energy from somewhere because one moment the psalmist is prostrate with grief and the next is up and ordering the enemy away. Was it a word from God or an encouraging word from God through a friend? Whatever happened, someone lifted the psalmist's head. Someone enabled him to turn his inward eye toward the living God in mute plea. Somehow, in some way, the Lord responded and enabled this struggling soul to stand up and take fresh account of his situation. Away from me, all you who do evil, for the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies will be overwhelmed with shame and anguish. They will turn back and suddenly be put to shame. So is this just a psychological trick? Choosing to believe something that may or may not be true so you can keep going. A non-Christian friend of mine once commented to me that they were surprised that my husband had become a believer in Christ. They didn't think he would feel the need for such a crutch. I explained that my husband didn't choose to put his trust in Jesus because he felt it would enable him to hobble through life more comfortably. He had chosen to put his trust in Jesus because the stories written about Jesus were actually true. In fact, the whole story of God and humankind in the Bible is actually true. There is actual power in this story because it is true. Choosing to believe it makes an actual and real here and now difference to the believer. And so here we find the psalmist confidently stating that the Lord has heard his weeping and his cry for mercy. Furthermore, God has accepted the prayer. God is going to answer it. That when he does, the enemies will be overwhelmed with the same anguish with which the psalmist was struggling back in verse 3. Well, there's justice for you. And now he knows God is indeed turned toward him. His enemies will indeed be turned back and put to shame for whatever it was they were doing. Well, there is vindication for you. But wait a minute. Have his circumstances actually changed? Well, it seems... Not yet. God will act in the future, but he hasn't done so yet. So no, nothing has physically changed. The situation is still the same, and faith is as strong as ever, but the whole picture has somehow been reframed. Same circumstances, 
different viewpoint. And because of this, depression and tears are replaced by confidence and anticipation. And so I'm thinking, maybe I need to buy myself another card or two to sit on my desk, to go with my lonely looking mouse. So how about this one? Thanks, Chris. The Isaiah reading, when you go through the waters, comes to mind with this one. It might seem an odd image to choose because it's of a woman, but she's seemingly wading through chest-deep, swampy water with a baby strapped to her back who's fast asleep. He hasn't got a care in the world. And I'm thinking, that would be a lovely place to be. Not with a care in the world, fast asleep, feeling quite safe. My nether regions might be a bit wet because they're sitting in the water as my mum walks through here. If you're wondering why I might choose an image that has uh, a mother in it rather than a father when I'm talking about Father God, I would just remind you that all motherly instincts and all feminine attributes derive from God. There is no other source, male and female, he made us in his image. And so God is mother to us as well as father. But then I thought of this next one. With this little boy, uh, somewhat precariously sitting on the parcel rack, astride the parcel rack on the back mudguard of his dad's bike, and there he is clinging on to his dad's back for dear life. And he hasn't got a clue where he's going. And it all feels a bit precarious, but he's trusting his dad to get him there. And I'm thinking, yeah, I might like that card on my desk. Sometimes I've got not, a, not an idea of where we're going with this, but uh, I'm just hanging on there and trusting to my dad. And then I came across um, another one here on the seashore. There's dad with his child and the sky is stormy and the sea is rough and they've got their bucket and spade there but there's going to be no digging of sandcastles today. They're both well rugged up against the weather and he's holding the child's hand and sometimes that's in life where we're at. The storm is still raging. We can't get to uh, playing sandcastles with our Father God. We have to wait for the weather to clear. But they are both well rugged up. And the child is having his hand held by his father. And then lastly, I had uh, this image, which again is on the seashore. Looking out, and the sea is now calm, and the sun is shining and I love the fact that the father is crouched down with his head right on a level with that of his little girl. He's holding her hand and together they're looking out across towards the sun. Is it sunrise or is it sunset they're looking toward? In any way, for me, it looks like they're looking towards the next adventure and they're together. Again, the father is holding the child's hand. In none of these pictures is the child alone. No matter how we might feel, 
we are never alone. So with this psalm, Psalm 6, it gives to us an acceptable form of worship. And perhaps because God knows where we are at, we need to know that ourselves. And as we identify exactly how we are feeling and what we are struggling with, and as we put this into words and speak this out to God, we are expressing our faith to him with all its puzzlements and disappointments. And we can ask him to please reframe our circumstances with Jesus in the picture so that we can, like the psalmist, be helped to our feet, tell our enemies where to get off, and look forward with anticipation to seeing how God is going to bring justice and vindication to us and glory to himself through all these trials. May God bless his word to us. Thank you.